Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that just as you said, you would never leave us as orphans, but when you would ascend on high, you would send the promise of the Spirit. Thank you that his love has been poured out in our hearts such that we cry internally, Abba, Father. And thank you for your objective love and that while we were yet enemies, while we were sinners, while we were ungodly, that Christ Jesus died for us. We love you, our Father, and we thank you that in giving of your Son, you gave of yourself. We praise you that we can know you in a personal, life-changing way. And we thank you that the trials that come our way, the tribulations of this world, are always filtered through your sovereign hands. Help us today as we open your word. Please open our hearts to the truth. I pray, Father, for those who are listening, wherever they may be, if they have never met your son in a personal life-changing way, that today the Spirit, as only he can do, would illuminate the eyes of their hearts that they might see the glory of Christ. May they understand the gospel and all of its ramifications and help those of us who have met you to love you more deeply because of our exposure to your word. Father, without you, I can do nothing, but with you, all things are possible. So I pray that you would fill me and anoint me and use me and speak through me today. I ask it in Jesus' name and for his name's sake, amen. Will you take God's word on this Lord's Day, please, and turn to the book of Romans chapter 1, where I hope to ask and answer the question, have we angered God? If you're new to the Bible, Right after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books, you'll come to the book of Acts. That's a record of the first 30 years of church history. And then you will come to Romans. Now, we are living in days where the entire world is in a crisis. And it could, in many ways, very much well define our future. A tiny, microscopic virus is doing what wars and political maneuvers could not do, which helps us to see just the scenario painted in Scripture that someday there will be a one-world leader and a one-world government. There is growing political chaos across the world. There is a financial collapse in many countries, far worse than what we are seeing in America as unemployment continues to grow. And so many people are in despair and confusion and even fear. But again, this will someday, you can see this scenario, See how God could set the table through a virus like this or whatever he may choose to use to bring about that coming world leader we know as the Antichrist. Now, this morning, I hope to ask and answer really a number of questions. Many of you have written me and asked me, is there some prophetic significance to this virus? And what does God really think about America today? And since this virus is not simply bound to our shores, we might ask, what does God really think about the world today and what is happening? 
Well, we're going to use Romans 1 as our launch pad, but we're going to use a number of passages from both the Old and New Testament to answer the question, have we angered God? But let's begin by reading a portion of the text from Romans 1, beginning now in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of, his world, of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Now, before we dig into the meaning and the application of these verses, I think it would be helpful to make sure we have in our thinking a biblical theology of the wrath and the anger of God. It will help us, I think, to be far more discerning over what is really unfolding in our world today. Now, the Bible is filled with hundreds of references to God's justice, God's righteousness, God's perfection, and God's holiness. And with that being true, any violation of those attributes would demand adjudication, just as it would in a human court of law. So we need to ask, have we angered God? And in that question, there is an assumption that God can get angry, and I know that's offensive to many people. One lady wrote us yesterday, she took great offense that on one of our campuses in Aiken County that we would even have that on the marquee that it was not a good thing in her mind. Well, listen, we want to understand, does God get angry? And I can promise you, you will never understand the love of God until you understand the wrath of God. So there on your note-taking outline, we want to first address understanding the nature of God's wrath. Let's think together about understanding the nature of God's wrath. Again, there's hundreds of references to his holiness, his perfection, his righteousness, his justice. So let's, under the first heading, consider God is holy and therefore he is wrathful. He's holy, therefore he is wrathful. The prophet Isaiah gets a glimpse through a vision of the throne room of God, and he hears the song of the seraphim, and they crowd, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Now, why do the holy seraphim three times over repeat God is holy? Wouldn't it be enough just to say that God is holy? Well, if you know a little bit about Hebrew, you know that when a word is repeated, it's repeated for intensification. To say the Lord is holy says something. To say the Lord is holy, holy says even more. But to say holy, holy, holy is the Lord is to declare his holiness to the highest possible degree. So what does it mean when it says God is holy? Well, at its root meaning, the Hebrew word, much like the Greek word, means simply to be set apart. It can describe a person or a thing that is set apart for God's purposes. And so as an object, if it's holy, it's called into sacred service. 
If it's a person, and so in the New Testament, the Haggaioi, the saints, literally the holy ones, we who have met Christ, who have been credited with his righteousness by grace through faith, are called saints. We're called holy ones. And so it forces us to ask a question, in what sense is God holy? In what sense is he set apart? Well, he's set apart from his creation. The Lord God Almighty who created this world exists outside of his creation. Listen, if all of creation dissolved today, God would remain. He's set apart from humanity. He's set apart from all that he has made because he is divine. God is not some superman. He's not some ultimate man. God is not merely smarter than us. He's not merely stronger than us or older than us. No, God is beyond anything that you could think of on the human chart. He is divine, and we are human. And yet, because we are made in the image of God, we're compatible in having a relationship with the living God. Now, please know, unlike, say, pagan Mormonism, where they have literally hundreds and millions of God, there's nothing about Jesus Christ in their religion. It's more like Hinduism. We as believers are made in the image of God. In fact, everyone is made in God's image, and therefore we are compatible to have a relationship with the Lord. And this, among other reasons, is why Jesus could take on our humanity. He could become a man. He could add to his divinity perfect, sinless humanity. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And so God's power is a holy power. God's love is a holy love. God's wisdom is a holy wisdom. God's holiness sets him apart from everything and all of his creation. It's part of who he is and all that he does. And so for God to overlook unholiness, for God to blink at sin, would cause him to topple from his throne of justice. So if we're to understand the nature of God, first and foremost, we must know because God is holy, God is wrathful. But secondly, God is just, and therefore he is wrathful. God is not only holy, he is just, and therefore he is wrathful. Again, hundreds of verses throughout both Testaments affirm that God is both holy and just. Now, when we say that God is just, we mean he's perfectly righteous in everything that he does. God is just in that he shows no partiality, as Peter will affirm in Acts 10. He acts perfectly, righteously, without any partiality towards all of his creation. And so God describes his justice both towards the saved and the lost. For instance, his justice towards the saved. The writer of the Hebrews says, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and then still ministering to the saints. Or in reference to the lost, the apostle Paul says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. And so in speaking of the just wrath of God, Paul says, for after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution 
to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. In Psalm 89, 14, God describes his throne as being built on justice and righteousness. The psalmist writes, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Loving kindness and truth go before you. So justice, well, it's important to all of us. Why is it important to you? Because you are made in the image of God. And even if you've never read or studied the Bible, Romans 2.15 tells us that God's law was written into your heart. It's, it, it's a reflection of what his character is like. Think about it. Imagine Adolf Hitler had been caught alive and brought before a human court of law. And so for the next nine hours, they read his crimes. But at the end, the judge says, I see what you've done. You've murdered millions of people but I think you've learned your lesson. He takes the gavel, he slams it down, and he says, not guilty, you're free to go. In such a scenario, immediately in your heart, there would, be, there would rise up a sense that this is an awful injustice, that this man who murdered millions should be punished. Why do you even think that way? Why do you know the difference between right and wrong, what's just and what's unjust? Because you're made in the image of God and written into your spiritual DNA is the law of God. Now, you've heard it said that all truth is God's truth because everything that's in the universe, whether it's a mathematical formula or some scientific law or some relationship boundary, all comes from God. Uh, we don't determine truth. All we do as humans is discover truth, the truth that already exists. All the truth that exists comes from God, and it displays His character. And among other aspects, it displays that He is just. He is righteous. Now, there are people who are teaching us today that we evolved out of the pond scum. The evolutionist argues that, you know, and even, by the way, the theistic evolutionist says that, you know, God just either used the process of evolution or that there is no God. And, and so they have to come up with some explanation as to how this whole universe came into being. But listen, that's not the truth. That is a lie from the pit of hell, as we will examine in just a few moments. And so when God created Adam, and Adam was a direct creation of God, there were no humans on the earth. It was not out of the glue into the zoo that became you. No, God directly created Adam and Eve, and he created them for his own purposes and pleasure, and he richly blessed them, and he created them with a free will. And you see that man was given a choice. He had the opportunity to express free will when God said, then the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day, meaning the very day you eat from it, you will surely die. And Adam immediately died that day on the inside. He died spiritually, began to die physically. Now we're born dying, getting older. And if the problem's not fixed before we leave this world, we will experience a third kind of death, eternal death. Now, in God's first command, what we call the creation mandate, he said this, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That was a commandment of blessing. But here in the second commandment, God gave a commandment of warning. He said, please don't. 
He commanded them. He warned them what would happen if they disobeyed. But they, like us, have said, we will do as we please. And so man has committed high treason against our Creator. And so justice demands action. God must step in. And so to satisfy His justice without destroying man, God did something. The first death in all the universe takes place. God kills some innocent animals. He makes coats of skin, and He clothes Adam, and He teaches them an example by typology that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness for sin, that sin deserves death, and so God clothes them with these animal skins. Abel got it. Cain rebelled against it. But since animal blood cannot ultimately atone for man's sin, God, thousands of years later, remaining just because He loved us, provided the very one who would become the substitute. And so in 2 Corinthians 5, it says, He, meaning the Father, made Him, meaning Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. He was tempted in every way as we, yet without sin. The one who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, as He hung there on Golgotha. He bore our sin in His body on the cross. The one who knew no sin became sin. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So throughout the ages, all of us have said, we will do as we please. And God says, your sin deserves death. For the wages of sin is death. The soul that sins must die. But God in His grace and His mercy sent His Son to take that penalty for us. Peter will write that Christ died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that He might bring us to God. And so because God's justice is satisfied through a substitute, He can pronounce us not guilty. God is infinitely just, and God is infinitely love. And the love and justice of God met there on a cross And so God can forgive us. He doesn't have to hold our sins against us. And so Isaiah, the prophet, quoting God, says, I, even I, and the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will remember, I'll not remember your sins. The writer of the Hebrews, by the way, quotes a portion of that verse. Your sins and your lawless deeds I will remember no more. It's not that God has a case of divine amnesia, but He doesn't hold them against you. Why? Because they have been justly paid for in a substitute. And so God pronounced the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus as the payment for our sin. The one who was sinless was cursed on our behalf. Paul will write, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, don't get lost in this forest of theology. The first heading that we're considering is we are understanding the nature of God's wrath. God's wrath is a violation of His holiness. It is a violation of His justice. And God being both just and holy is also loving and merciful, and He provided a way of escape. Without justice, though, sin would run rampant. And no one would want to live in a world where there was no justice. Evil would reign. And so God says of His people in Micah 6 and verse 8, 
He summarizes three qualities that he wants reflected in us. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before your God? Again, if God overlooked sin, if God blinked and winked at sin, he would be less than holy. And so God's anger burns towards sin. And if you have created a God who can never get angry, you're denying the very way God has made you when righteous anger rises up in your heart and you are distorting the meaning of the cross of Christ. Now, beyond understanding the nature of the wrath of God, let's think for a moment about understanding the expressions of God's wrath. Keep in mind that the study of God's attributes and understanding the expressions of his wrath is a rather complex theological issue. If, one, if the one true God is both holy and just, such that his wrath is justified, then how does God show that wrath in the world? Well, if you study the wrath of God systematically, you will find there are at least four different expressions to the wrath of God. First, there in your outline, point A, there is the eternal wrath of God. God has a holy hatred for sin. And so there's a future dimension of the wrath of God. We often refer to it as eternal wrath. And so Paul speaks in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10 of the wrath that is to come. He's looking down the corridors of time when Christ will ultimately judge all the living and the dead. We studied this future eternal wrath in the book of Revelation, which we just finished. We're told in Revelation 20, then, the, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. You say, Pastor, I was raised in a church where I was told that these descriptions, like a lake of fire, were just symbolic but not real. Well, you were lied to. Because God's word is very clear that these are real. But even if you were to say they were just symbolic, listen, that means the reality is far stronger. If I take a picture of a sunset, it is symbolic of what I've seen with my naked eye, but the reality is far greater. And if these were just uh, symbols, then the torment and the wrath and the punishment that will follow is far greater. But these are not symbols. God made it very clear that there's coming a day where men will meet him in eternal wrath. In fact, in describing both the righteous and the lost, Jesus said, these will go into eternal, the Greek word is ionion, these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal ionion life. Now, there are heretics like Rob Bell who said, well, you know, hell is not really forever, and, and it's an old lie brought up throughout the ages of the history of the church. But I want to remind you that the same word that's used to describe eternal life and eternal punishment is also used to describe the eternal God. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever, Amen. To say that God is not eternal, then you might conclude that hell is not eternal and heaven is not eternal, but you cannot possibly do it. And so the truth is, is that God is equally glorified in his wrath because it expresses his justice, just as he is glorified in his love that expresses his kindness. People are not extinguished. 
Hell is not burned out. The doctrine of annihilationism that, you know, you're just, it just ends in the grave and that's it is a false doctrine. Do you remember what we studied in Revelation 19 and verse 20? Let me dust off your minds. We're told, and the beast, that's a reference to the Antichrist, and the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who'd received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire which burns with brimstone. The first two humans ever to enter the lake of fire is the beast, the Antichrist, and his compadre, the false prophet. And a thousand years later, when the great white throne judgment takes place, where are they? They're still in the lake of fire. Why? Because hell is forever. God never originally made hell for man. He made it for the devil and his angels. And God is clear. He takes no pleasure in sending people to hell. But twice over in Revelation 20, it's called the lake of fire in those verses we just read, and and it's called the lake of fire and brimstone. Now, Jesus made it clear that this is forever. In fact, Jesus said more about hell than any other single person in all of Holy Scripture. Do you remember that occasion when a rich man died and he died and went to Hades? Not because he was rich, but because he was an unbeliever. In Hades, the Scripture says, he lifted up his eyes being in torment and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony." Besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. Hell is a fixed place. And so those who say, well, you go to hell and you pay for your sin kind of like a uh, heightened purgatory and then get out of hell. It denies everything that God says concerning the eternality of hell. Jesus in Mark 9, 48 described it as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is never, ever, ever quenched. By the way, that's a quotation from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 66 which reminds us that the doctrine of eternal retribution is not simply a New Testament doctrine. It's taught in the Tanakh and the Old Testament. Sadly, today, though, the doctrine of hell has virtually disappeared from evangelicalism, and no one noticed it. If you talk about hell, you're accused of being a fire and brimstone preacher. Well, listen, I believe in fire and brimstone. I also believe in grace and forgiveness And we need to wed the two together because God does. But listen, hell is a real place. Now, sometimes people use it just as a curse word, or sometimes they use it to describe a horrible event that they're going through. Listen, my hat is off to some of these first responders and these doctors and nurses and people who work in the hospitals caring for the sick. And and one recently was interviewed on the news and She literally said, this virus is hell. We are living in hell. Now, she may not have been able to find a better word to describe the circumstances that she was going through, but I promise you, it is not hell. It doesn't even begin to compare. 
Now, there's a second dimension in God's wrath. Beyond the eternal wrath of God, there is the eschatological wrath of God, the eschatological wrath of God. Eschatos is the Greek word for last, ology, the study of. And so, when we speak of eschatology, we're speaking of the study of last things. And when we speak of that eschatological wrath, we're speaking of that wrath that will come upon the earth before Christ comes back and before ultimately we enter into eternity. Now, here's the challenge. Every time there's a new earthquake or some natural disaster, or maybe you've been reading about the locusts that have been inhabiting countries and destroying the crops, or now this uh, pandemic virus, people will say, this is it. We are, we are experiencing the birth pangs that Jesus spoke of in the Olivet Discourse. His return from heaven must be very near. And they say that this virus is a sign for the rapture. When in reality, there are actually no signs. There have never been any signs for the rapture. The Bible teaches the imminent return of Christ, that he could come at any moment. And so the rapture is not a prophecy-driven event. Certainly, the second coming is. And so people will read verses like Matthew, uh, like Luke 21, 11. Someone was recently interviewed on CNN and Fox, two different people actually, and they both used this verse to say that this pandemic virus was a fulfillment of what Jesus said. Luke 21, 11 is the Olivet Discourse, just written by Luke, not to the same detail. And it says, and there will be great earthquakes, Jesus said, and in various places, plagues, or you could translate it pestilences and famines, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There they say, there it is, a plague, a pestilence. That's what this virus is about. This is the birth pangs unfolding. Now, please understand, Jesus is speaking in the Olivet Discourse of a time of tribulation that is going to come unparalleled in all of human history. He said, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. It's called in the Old Testament in Jeremiah 30, the time of Jacob's trouble. And one of the functions of the great tribulation period is A, to bring the Jewish people to faith. They're going to recognize Yeshua is the Messiah, but also to make them the light to the world, what God intended for them to be in the Old Testament. And they will bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, and then Jesus will come back. 144,000 Jews and two witnesses, not to mention an angel with the eternal gospel, will preach the gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and the great commission will be fulfilled. Everyone will have heard. But understand, this eschatological wrath, known as the day of the Lord in Scripture, described in Matthew 24. In fact, why don't you turn to Matthew 24 for just a moment? It's described in Matthew 24, but then it is unfolded in great detail in Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Now, there are 21 judgments that comprise the tribulation that becomes great tribulation. And they're given in sign, they're given in seals, they're given in trumpets, and they are given in the bold judgments. Let me just picture for you the overall schematic, though, in your mind as to how these events will unfold. As you can see on this next chart, uh, the next great event is the rapture of the church. And by the way, whether you believe the rapture is at the beginning of the tribulation or the end does not change what I'm going to describe here in just a few moments. But I believe the next great event is the church will be caught up. 
The tribulation will turn into great tribulation. There's an event in the middle of the seven-year period. It's known as the abomination of desolation. Jesus put it as a future event. And so over seven years, there will be wrath that will come upon the earth. And Jesus describes that wrath here in Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, and it will conclude with his second coming. He will literally fulfill the promises to Israel. We pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. That's a prayer that will literally be fulfilled. His kingdom will come to earth. We went through six reasons why God just didn't end it all then, but he will rule and reign for a thousand years, and then we will enter into the eternal state. Now, with that said, and there are some amillennialists, they believe there is no millennial reign of the Messiah, that he won't rule for a thousand years. The only thing on their calendar is the second coming. They see the tribulation period as having already been fulfilled before 70 A.D., and they have somewhat of a convoluted view of the end times because they have a wrong view of Israel. God is using Israel to fulfill his purposes. He used them to bring the coming of the Messiah the first time, and he will use them again to bring them back. But what I want you to see on this next chart as you follow along in Matthew is that there are parallels between what Jesus says in the Olivet Discourse and what's described in Revelation, which would tell you right off that it's impossible to say that this virus is part of the birth pangs. Look at Matthew 24, 4, and 5. We're told that the birth pangs, um, which would represent the first seal, he says, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. So with the church having been raptured, there will be an open door for many deceivers, including the greatest of all deceivers, the Antichrist himself. The first horseman will come on a white horse, Revelation chapter 6, and he is the epitome of the uh, great deception that is going to come. Jesus goes on. Look at Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. We studied in our exposition of the Revelation that this fulfills the second seal, the red horsemen of the apocalypse. There will be unparalleled wars upon the earth, so much so that the rumor in everyone's lips concerns yet another war. Then he moves us to the third trauma, the third seal, where there will be horrible famines and pestilence, Luke adds. And in various places, there will be famine. That's the black horse of famine. World hunger will be widespread during this time. This fourth horse, men will come on an ashen horse, a pale horse, and he'll bring with him famine, worldwide pestilence, and death. And so the fourth seal corresponds to Christ's earlier promise in both Matthew and in Luke's gospel where he references untold earthquakes and death and pestilence that will come by disease. This is what he said. Listen to it in Matthew 24, verses 7 and 8. And in various places there will be earthquakes. Verse 8, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Please understand, Jesus puts the birth pangs during the time of the tribulation, and that's what you see unfolded here in the Revelation as well. So the birth pangs are not yet here, but I want to tell you once the water breaks, which I think the rapture will bring on, 
Then the birth pangs will describe what these verses are unfolding. Look at verses 9 and 10 of of Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Then he adds in verse 13, but the one who endures the end, he will be saved. Those are the martyrs of Revelation chapter 6 who refused to take the mark of the Antichrist. Or Revelation 6 and 7 and 14 and throughout the Revelation, where they refuse to take the mark, they are willing to die for Jesus' sake. And so it perfectly corresponds with the fifth seal of Revelation 6. And at this point in the tribulation, this is just the first three and a half years that are being described. These are just the birth pangs that are going to escalate. And so to put this virus and the time frames of the birth pangs and to call it, well, this is part of the birth pangs, is really to take Scripture out of context. It will sell books. It will make for dramatic preaching, but it's not faithful to the eschatological wrath that he describes in the Olivet Discourse and unfolds in great specificity in the book of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. Now, there's a third dimension to God's wrath beyond God's, and you might just bring up the rest of the chart if you would. Uh, There we go. There's cosmic changes, signs in the heavens. That's Revelation 6, the sixth seal. And then there's the worldwide preaching of the gospel. We have never really truly fulfilled the Great Commission, but it is going to be fulfilled during the time of the tribulation. The rapture is not dependent on it. That doesn't mean we fold our hands and say, well, God's going to do it anyway. Listen, we support over 300 missionaries monthly through this fellowship. Why? Because we believe it is our responsibility to take the gospel to the world. But what the church has not accomplished in 2,000 years, God is going to accomplish in that final segment of human history. So beyond eternal wrath and eschatological wrath, there is cataclysmic wrath. I want us to think about the cataclysmic wrath of God. You need to know, though, let me say parenthetically, that sometimes people define cataclysmic wrath as consequential wrath, or sometimes they will divide consequential wrath into a category all of its own. But to make consequential wrath a category all of its own, consequential wrath is argued, well, it's the law of sowing and reaping. You you reap that which you sow, and that's a true biblical principle, but it's rather simplistic because believers can also experience consequences for their sin, and it would certainly not be wrath, for He has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation. So I think it's simply best to refer to cataclysmic wrath which doesn't happen very often in human history, but when it does happen, it happens as a reminder that God is involved in human history, that He doesn't rule this earth from afar, like the deists would argue. In fact, God takes responsibility for cataclysmic wrath. Listen to these words from Isaiah chapter 45. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God, I will gird you though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. God is sovereign, he says in this verse, over calamity. You say, I have trouble with God being sovereign over calamity. 
Well, I'd have a lot more trouble if he wasn't sovereign over calamity. But sadly, many today, they live under the illusion that God is not really involved in the affairs of men and nations. Please understand, unlike that song decades ago, from a distance, God doesn't rule the earth from a distance. He rules it up close and personal. He is involved in the affairs of men and nations. And so God on occasion has brought cataclysmic wrath, be it Noah's flood or the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. We find another example where a rebel by the name of Korah with a couple of his friends led a rebellion against Moses, and he and all of his followers were immediately sucked up, the earth opened up, and they were swallowed up alive into hell. But take Noah's flood, for instance. It serves as a reminder of the atmosphere that will characterize the last days, because Jesus said the coming of the Son of Man would be like the days of Noah, and then the suddenness of the judgment that will come that people are not expecting. Listen to these words from 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own loss, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. They're simply saying, according to the laws of nature, life is simply just one continuous, unbroken experience. We call that uniformitarianism. It's a false doctrine. They say nothing has changed. Nothing cataclysmic has ever happened from heaven. Our world continues with no interruption from God himself. And Peter, by the way, calls that willful ignorance in verse 5. He says, for when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. If you have the NASB out in the margin, it gives you a more literal rendering. It says, for they are willfully ignorant of this fact. You know, some people are ignorant just because they're ignorant, but other people are ignorant because they are willfully ignorant. But the fact that they willfully ignore a good deal of evidence does not seem to bother them. These people, in essence, put out their own spiritual eyes. Why? Because they don't want to see. Because if they admit that God has been involved in human history before, then he can do it again, that Christ is coming back. And if Christ is coming back, that means that he is Lord, and that means that they are accountable. And so Jesus said they love their evil deeds. And so what do they do? They shut out the truth. They deny the truth. They don't know the truth because they don't want to know the truth, and they cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a police officer. They don't want to find God Almighty. As we just read earlier in Romans chapter 1, these are people who are suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. It's willful ignorance. Look at verse 5. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the Word of God, The heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. They willfully and deliberately ignore God's hand in creation. They deny the creative hand of God. And so a paleontologist who's a Christian can read the Bible, and he will come to a different set of conclusions than the paleontologist who does not believe in the Word of God. And God wants us to see that such people are willfully ignorant. When they maintain this, it escapes their notice by the word of God. The heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. 
Peter is arguing to the inconsistency of the mockers in the last days by bringing two truths to our creation. The first is the creation that God as a direct creation of his hand made the world, and secondly, the worldwide flood. First, he says that by the word of God, the Lord spoke this universe into existence, making it out of water and by water. He's telling us God is not far removed from his creation because God made his creation. God created the heavens and the earth by his word. This is why I find Tim Keller's Arguments so disgusting. He calls himself a Christian apologist. He's an an apologist for a lie, but not for the truth. To say that you can believe in theistic evolution, much like Pat Robinson does. And by the way, Ken Ham, I thought, did a fantastic job yesterday on his Twitter account denying the lie that Pat Robinson has been arguing for theistic evolution, that this world is billions of years old. By the way, I hope you appreciate Ken Ham and all that he's doing, and he is challenged as Christian ministries across the country, and if you have a little extra, this would be a good time to help that ARC ministry because it's closed down right now by the government. But what I want you to see is that according to Genesis, God spoke and it was created, for he spoke Psalm 33, 9 says, and it was done, and he commanded, and it stood fast. The Bible is clear that God just spoke it into existence, and it was finished. And so if you are ignorant of the past, you'll be ignorant of the future. If you're wrong on the origin of the species, you'll be wrong on the destiny of the species. And the devil knows that the key to the whole Bible is right there in the front door. Elohim. In the beginning created God the heavens and the earth. And that's why the devil is doing everything in his power to deny the first verse of the Bible But I said some people don't understand because they don't want to understand. Peter says they are willfully ignorant. And so Peter is basically saying, Mr. Skeptic, Mr. Mocker, Mr. Scoffer, you who say God has never intervened before, he has, this world is a direct creation of his hand. His argument is plain, and to embrace theistic evolution or evolution Just say it, God is a liar, his word is not true, because that is what you are saying. But he proceeds with a second illustration, reminding us that God does indeed intersect with his creation. By the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, verse 6, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. Talk about a cataclysmic event. In fact, the word flooded is a, is a Greek word, excuse me, kataluzo. We get our word cataclysmic from it. That's the word that's translated flooded here, the verb. It's an expression of God's cataclysmic wrath. In fact, in this same book, in 2 Peter chapter 2, he spoke of another cataclysmic event. How God condemned, Second Peter 2, how he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. Now, in spite of Abraham's intercessory prayer and Lot's last-minute warning, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah perished in fire and brimstone. 
Did they think this judgment was going to come? I know for a fact they didn't think it was going to come any more than the people in Noah's day thought it was going to come. How do I know that? Because Jesus said they didn't expect it. In reference to Lot's day, just like Noah's day, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. He just described the days of Noah. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Up to the very last minute, the people in Sodom thought, everything is fine, nothing is going to happen. And then judgment came, and they were all destroyed. So in reducing Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, Peter said this is an example. God doesn't destroy every Sodomite city. He did it only once, just like he flooded the world only once. And he'll never do that again, he said. But it is an example that God is involved in this world. Now listen, this wrath is not cataclysmic wrath. And so you can eliminate that category. So there is eternal wrath. There is eschatological wrath of the tribulation. There's the cataclysmic wrath that is a constant reminder that God is involved up close in world history. But fourth, there's the wrath of abandonment, the wrath of abandonment. Sometimes this is called forsaking wrath. And it's the wrath that our country today is experiencing. Now, whether this virus is representative of that wrath. We'll speak about that to a moment. But I want you to know that the wrath of abandonment today is happening not just in our country, but across the world. And this kind of wrath can happen on an individual or a society or a nation or a world. Turn to Psalm 80. Let me give you an Old Testament example to begin with. Psalms, if you're new to the Bible, it's about dead center in most of your Bibles. And go to Psalm 80. The book of Psalms is divided by God into five different books. When you come to Psalm 80, it's book three. Psalms 73 to 89 uh, comprise book three of the Psalms. And these Psalms describe the supernatural intervention in the midst of difficult circumstances. God doesn't just classify these books randomly. Well, here's a good place to divide it. He, he did it the way he did for a purpose. And here in book three, 11 of those Psalms is written by a very godly man by the name of Asaph, a man who walked with God, who deeply cared about the things of God. And he's really a patriot of sorts. Look at Psalm 80 and let's read uh, verses seven and eight. O God of hosts, restore us and cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. You removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. Now, if you've studied the Old Testament, you know that one of the symbols that God uses to describe Israel is that of a vine. It's used by Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea of the people of Israel. And in verse 8, Asaph is reminding the readers, by the sovereign hand of God Almighty, he took the vine Israel out of the land of Egypt, and he brought them into the promised land. You drove out the nations and planted it. He drove out all of those idolatrous, child-sacrificing, baby-killing nations. He took them off the land, and he put Israel in the land. You drove out the nations and planted it. And so Asaph has just summarized five books of the Bible from Exodus through the book of Joshua in one verse. He's telling us that Israel was divinely planted by God. Now look at verses 9 through 11. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. 
The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its bows. And it was sending out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the Red Sea. Asaph is using metaphorical language to describe the nation of Israel. Like a divine planner, God put them in a land flowing with milk and honey. He cleared the ground from the wicked Canaanites, and he planted them as a vine, and it took deep roots, and like a grapevine that spread, it prospered. He divinely prospered the nation, having planted them. And I might add in Psalm 33 and verse 12, what God did for Israel, he'll do for any nation that will honor him. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen for his own inheritance. God will bless any nation that will bless him. Blessed is the nation. That's what he says. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Likewise, Solomon can write in the book of Proverbs, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. I believe this nation was planted by God. Yes, it's always had its flaws because we're sinners, but it was a nation that sought to take the gospel to the world. And so God blessed us. Why? Because God loves the gospel of his son, because God wants to forgive sinners, and righteousness characterized this nation. But then he adds, sin is a disgrace to any people. Things have changed in America. The moral climate is quickly changing, just as it was changing in Asaph's day. Asaph lived far after the planning. During the time of the judges, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Twice over, God says that in Judges. It was a dark time in Israel's history. It took place after he divinely planted them in the promised land. Israel, like America, became self-sufficient. They forgot God. They didn't really need God. And so God began to wither them from without and from within. Look at verse 12 of this psalm. Asaph, the psalmist asks, why have you broken down its hedges so that all who pass by pick its fruit? Circle that word you. Why have you, it's emphatic in Hebrew, why have you, O oh God, broken down the hedges? I don't know what your doctrine of hedges is like. In the book of Job, Satan says, oh, Job only follows you because you blessed him. Break down his hedge. And we'll see how much he really loves you. Well, God put a hedge around Israel. He protected her so that no one could break through the hedge. But now God is saying he broke down the hedge. He took down the protective walls so that they could be plundered and her fruit could be picked. He's talking about external dangers because of their rebellion. They became weakened as a nation. They were not strong enough to defend themselves. And we, have a na we as Americans and more as a world have basically said, God, get lost. And God is taking his protective shield off of this country. You know, it seemed when 9-11 happened that maybe we'd get right, and for about two months, the churches were filled. And then we went right back into our own filth and slop. Israel was weakened from without, but Israel was also weakened from within because they lived independently of God, not only were they weakened on the outside, they were weakened on the inside. Look at verse 13. A boar from the forest eats it, that is the vine away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. A boar, a wild hog, eats the vine. It symbolizes Israel being rooted up, and we have internal enemies today. We are being eaten away economically, morally, 
and physically as a nation. Now, let me share a New Testament example. Go to the book of Romans in the New Testament. Go to Romans chapter 1. I told you this would be our launching pad verse, and so let me uh, look at that. Romans chapter 1. Notice uh, what he says beginning now in verse uh, 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Uh, What we find in Romans 1 is a picture of what God can do to an individual or a city or a nation or even a world when we ignore who he is as God. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Now, notice it's not a future tense. He doesn't say the wrath of God will be revealed. Circle the word is. It's a present tense. He's describing what is currently going on. So let's try to understand this wrath that is being revealed from heaven today right now. It's not some lightning bolt, but it's a dimension of God's wrath that works quietly, almost invisibly among those people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And it is operating, and it has been for several decades... In America, look at verse 19. How do people suppress this truth? Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. Paul, how has God made it evident to them? Because or for, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." Ever since the creation of the world, God's attributes, power, and nature are clearly seen through what he has made. Just as an artist reveals what he is like, so God's creation is an expression of what he is like. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, not knew God like we know God in John 17, this is eternal life, that they might know you. But they knew God and that they knew of his existence, and that's why biblically there are no such things as an atheist. So if you want to share your testimony and you said, I'll claim to be an atheist, okay, but don't say you were an atheist because you were never an atheist. You're denying what God plainly says. So he's describing even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. Instead, Paul tells us, but they became futile, futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. When a nation has light and they suppress that light or an individual, then God takes away the light of that revelation. And it results not in a heart that is enlightened, but in a heart that is darkened, a foolish heart. That's what Jesus warned of Israel in John chapter 12. He said, for a little while longer, the light is among you. He's speaking of himself. Walk while you, may, while you have the light so that darkness will not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness and does not know where he goes. Listen, it's dangerous for a person or for a nation or for a world to be exposed to the revelation of God in creation or in conscience and then to suppress that. Look at verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, that's the delusion of it all. You think you're smart, but God says you're a fool. They became fools. Verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. They're worshiping the creation. And about a third of the world still has this form of idolatry. And we worship the creation here in America. We call it the green movement. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
so their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. This was the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. We told God, we don't want you. We don't want to acknowledge you. No more Bible and prayer reading in our schools, and certainly no Ten Commandments. And the very aspect that shouts of God's existence, we began to deny through the theory of evolution, and God began to unleash his wrath of abandonment. Now, if you follow this passage, it will help you to understand what is happening in America today, and not just in America, but around the world. When God abandons a nation, when God lets a nation or a world go, it comes in three sequential steps. Notice, God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so their bodies would be dishonored among them. And that's precisely what came. We said no to God, and heterosexual immorality and sensuality began to sweep our nation. So first, the lusts of the flesh dominate the heart. That leads to impurity. And the society becomes pornographic. And just think about how the movies and the television programs began to radically change in the 80s and the 90s. And then the body follows the heart with widespread sexual immorality. And so the internet is filled with millions and millions of pornographic sites to satisfy the insatiable lusts of this world. And this, of course, results in a smashing of God's restraining grace. Listen, God holds sin back. He restrains sin but he begins to loosen his hand on a nation and a world, and the ultimate expression of God not restraining sin will happen in those final seven years. And so what we are seeing is horrific. The abuse of children, illicit sex traffic, pedophilia, broken marriages. Why? Because we don't desire God. We say we're enlightened, and God says we're fools. Verse 26, for this reason, for what reason? For the reason he just gave in verse 25, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Don't miss the connection. When God abandons them for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. The Greek New Testament literally reads, passions of dishonor. You see, some Christians have the idea that if we're not going to get right, that God is going to judge us. My friend, he is judging us. The wrath of God is being revealed, Paul is saying. And you see it in heterosexual and homosexual illicit sex. God is taking his hand off the nation. And this is all part of his judgment. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. That's lesbianism. And it's interesting that the Spirit of God mentions that first because women are typically the last to go with this kind of decay because God put within them a mothering instinct, a protecting instinct because God cares and loves so deeply children. But when the wrath of abandonment is enforced, even the women give themselves to degrading passions. And in the same way, also the men abandon the natural function of the women and burn in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. That's male homosexuality. Our Supreme Court has officially sanctioned it. 
And we've gone from 40% approval of homosexual lifestyle in 2010 to 2020, the most recent survey, 70% approval. And when a society rejoices in adultery and lesbianism and homosexuality and transgenderism, my friend, they are deeply sinking into the wrath of God. The third step, verse 28 And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved, an adokimos, a depraved mind, to do those things which are not tolerable. The word depraved, some of your translations say reprobate, some say useless. The Russian Bible paraphrases it, an upside-down mind. It's a wordplay in the Greek New Testament. They reprobated the knowledge of God, therefore God gave them over to a reprobate mind. They cast out the knowledge of God, and so God gave them over to a cast-out mind. And the word that's translated here, depraved, was used in the first century of a, a metal that you would test. And if the metal had so many impurities and it didn't pass the test, then it was considered worthless and useless. And God considers a mind that suppresses the truth as a worthless mind. You say, no God, no God, no God. God eventually gives you your wish. So first the heart is rotten, then the body follows, and then the mind goes. The reasoning is so corrupted, it's crippled, and people can't think straight. You call good evil and you call evil good. What I want you to see here in stage three is that as the conscience begins no longer to function, the path that follows is absolutely horrendous. Look at verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. They come up with new forms of evil. Disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And this is just a partial list. It's like someone opened up a sewer pipe and it's pouring out all across our nation. And although they know the ordinance of God, how do they know it? It's written into their hearts. Look, if you don't find forgiveness, you become an evangelist for sin. The person who sells abortion is the person typically who's had one. And if they don't want to receive the forgiveness of God, they become an evangelist, although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death. Not only do they do the same, they give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know it's wrong. They know the consequences, that it's worthy of judgment, but nonetheless, they give hearty approval. Welcome to a brave new world without God. So the question, have we angered God? Yes, we have. But that brings me to one third issue quickly beyond what we've studied concerning God's wrath and its various expressions. Let's think about understanding the current display of God's wrath. Let's ask some helpful questions as we conclude. First, is this virus a sign of Christ's return? Well, yes and no. We've clearly identified that it cannot be part of God's eschatological wrath it can't be one of the pestilences that Jesus mentions on the Sermon on the Mount because the birth pangs, whether you're pre-trib or post-trib, will not happen until that one world leader comes on the scene. 
So these are not the birth pangs that Christ spoke of. Those events will happen in the last seven years. But for the world to witness birth pangs, there must be a pregnancy. And I think our culture more and more is saying, listen, this pregnancy, it may be full term, and the water is getting ready to break. So in that sense, as you see God setting the stage for the second coming, because the rapture happens first, you know the rapture is that much closer. When you see the Christmas decorations go up in Walmart in October, you know that Thanksgiving is near. Why? Because Thanksgiving precedes Christmas. God is setting the stage for the return of his son. Third, or second, ask this question, is this virus different from other pestilences in history? Take, for instance, the Spanish flu of 1918. Uh, Back then, the population was 1.8 billion people on the earth, and somewhere between 50 and 100 million people died. It's all over the map. We know at least 50 million people died. Maybe as many as 100 million people died. And I suppose that that could have simply been a consequence of living in a fallen world. Remember, disease and death came as a result of the fall. Now, there was a movement, and this is why I would put this pandemic virus in a different category. There was a movement that started almost 200 years ago. Next year, it would be 200 years. In 1881, it's called the Zionist movement. And these were Jewish people who wanted to reclaim the land of Israel. And by the way, they have reclaimed it. And this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Ezekiel 36, 24, God promises, for I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Christians who preached that 100 years ago were laughed out of their pulpits. But they said God said it was going to happen. And in Ezekiel 38, 8, God predicts that this will happen in the latter years. That's a time marker in Scripture before the Messiah returns. And so God has gathered the Jewish people from over a hundred nations of the world, and he has planted them back in the land of Israel. Add to that, with every month, with every year that goes by, it appears that we're living more and more in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And the Lord tells us in Luke 17 that his coming will be an entire frame that will be characterized by the days of Noah and the days of Lot. So you've got Israel in the land. You didn't have that in 1918. You have the days of Noah and the days of Lot. It's like God is setting the stage. And so in our nation, there's more and more violence and immorality and drunkenness and homosexuality, so much so that we entertain ourselves on it at night. That's what these TV programs are all about about the very things that God destroyed the world for. Third, we must ask, is this virus a warning from God? There's no question it's a warning from God. How do I know? Because Jesus drew a conclusion when disaster comes in Luke 13 that it should be a warning to us. Twice over after he mentioned Pilate who killed innocent Jewish people, and then when he mentioned the Tower of Siloam that a disaster of source, it fell over and it killed 18 people. He said, it's a reminder that you're going to die, all of us. And so he said, I tell you, unless you repent, you likewise will perish. His point is, we're all sinners, we're all going to die, and so we all need to be ready. Now remember, God portrays death as an enemy. It was never part of his original plan. It came into the world through sin. And remember, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, 
And the Bible says that God desires none to perish but for all to come to repentance. And so God will often bring warnings. For 120 years, Noah built an ark. And in the New Testament, he is called a preacher of righteousness. God used that ark as a warning, as a reminder that he was going to bring judgment. And this pandemic should be a reminder to everyone that judgment is coming maybe sooner than we realize. I mean the eschatological judgment and then the eternal judgment. Then we must ask, is this virus a sign that God has abandoned us in his anger? Is it a sign that God has abandoned us in his anger? Well, the answer to that question, it all depends on who us is. While God may abandon a nation, while God may abandon a world, God will never, ever, ever abandon his own people. And the Bible reminds us as we approach the end of the age, true Christians will become more and more a minority. You'll be hated on behalf of all men. And the very thing on which this great nation was built is quickly slipping away. And there's a growing unrighteousness across our land and across our world. And things that we once called wrong, we now call rights. And what's so sad is so many young pastors are afraid to stand up to their generation. Because when you meet people, especially 30 and below, they like to call themselves and consider themselves spiritual. And when you ask them about being born again, they would say they're not and they don't want to be. Paul said to Timothy, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he said in that list, people will hold to a form of godliness. Although they've denied its power, avoid such men as these. Look, I pray for revival, and God may bring revival, but there's coming a generation that will see zero revival. God won't bring a revival in the very end. He'll just bring his son. Now, that doesn't discourage me from preaching the gospel, number one, because I'm commanded to do it. Number two, God has always had his remnant, and there are always people who are open to the gospel. God has said, go and tell, and there'll always be people who will respond if you go sharing the love and grace and wrath of God in a spirit-filled life. But understand, it's going to get more and more lonely to name the name of Christ. But God will never abandon you. Lord, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now listen, if you've never met Jesus Christ, if you don't have the assurance that if this were your last day on, on earth, that you would go to heaven, you need to be ready. This virus should be a reminder to you, based on what Jesus said in Luke 13, that we're all going to die and we all need to be ready. And there's only one way for God to be pleased with you, and that is for you to receive the one who in your place took all of your wrath. And if you will admit that your sin is worthy of wrath, that it needs forgiveness and change, and call upon Jesus in faith in an instant of time, he'll forgive all your sin, past, present, and future. He'll write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when Jesus comes, he will take you to heaven. Now, Holy Father, we thank you for your word, a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that as believers, while we do not know everything that is happening in the world, there is so much that you have told us about that we are to be alert to. I pray today, Father, for someone listening to me who's really not certain 
that heaven is their home. They'd like to go. They think they might go because in the back of their mind, they're not sure they're good enough. And may you convince them that they are not and never can be. And so you said we're saved by grace through faith, not by good works so that no one can brag. You said the gift of God is eternal life. Help them to see that salvation is not earned. It's a gift humbly paid for through a substitute, Jesus, who left the glory and splendor of heaven and humbled himself by becoming a man. But we thank you because he died in our place and you raised him from the dead, that you have exalted him in heaven and given the name that is above every name, that someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord. But help someone today before it is forever too late. You warned us that while we have the light, respond to the light, lest the darkness overtake us. There are some watching who have an open heart today, and that open heart today that you brought about by the stirring of your spirit could be closed tomorrow. You said you'll not always strive with men. Help them to understand that Christ Jesus receives sinful men that he came to seek and to save that which is lost. Would you there take God at his word that if you'll call in the name of Jesus, he will save you. Say, Lord Jesus, save me. Save me a sinner. Forgive me and change me. And I'll spend out of gratitude the rest of my life living for you. And Father, help those of us who know you not to be unraveled by the events of these days. Lord Jesus, you said ultimately these things must take place, but help us as your people to walk with a sense of confidence that you are a sovereign God ruling over the nations of this world, and help us even this week to go with a heart of compassion and love. If these things that we are reading of this morning are an expression of the wrath that is being revealed, Father, we know they're just a foretaste of the eternal wrath to come. May that put compassion in our hearts for those who have never met you. Help us this week to share the gospel. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Now, would you look up here? Maybe today, just a moment ago, you received Christ. Text to 94090-94090-CBCUS. There's a visitor's card there. Fill it out. Under the prayer section, say, today I receive Christ as my Savior, and I want to send you some helpful information.